Uh, a few weeks ago, I was sitting in a life group that we had here for Kairos, and those groups were so amazing. And so I had an opportunity to be able to hear the stories uh, for some of the people that were going through these groups. And I heard stories about healing. Do you guys know what Kairos is? It's like kind of a freedom uh, group that we had went through. And so there were some powerful stories of people finally forgiving for the first time and just feeling the freedom of that or being healed from hurts that they've carried for a long time in their life. And there were people that their family was being changed because of the work that God was doing in them. And so their family was being changed by that. And as I was sitting there listening to these stories, I was just in amazement of God and how he was taking territory back from the enemy in the lives of people. But in the same week, I went to a prayer breakfast, and it was before the elections, and so it was like, we're going to pray for our leaders, and we're going to pray for the people that are in election, and they were talking about a lot of the statistics and things that were going on, and I'm sad to say that I don't really keep up on a lot of that stuff, because really it's kind of just horrible all the time, and I feel like I leave depressed hearing these things, but I was listening to it, and there were so many things that I was blown away. I'm like, what? is going on in our country. But there was one statistic that really stuck out to me, and it's kind of just been something I've been praying about and praying about because it just really grabbed my heart so much. And it was that there are pornographic books in our elementary schools across our nation. I see you guys nodding your head. I had no idea. But there are these books, and parents are just in shock that their kids are seeing these things and coming home with these things. And And so while I have this one day where I see the territory being pushed back from the enemy, I'm sitting here thinking, what is going on? How is the enemy able to take that kind of ground where fourth graders are in their educational system being able to see these things and it's not being challenged, really? And I'm like, what is going on in our world? And the Bible tells us from cover to cover that we're in a war. Do you guys know that? Like, I know I'd rather not be, and so thank you to all of the veterans out there that bravely were willing to step into that place of war, but I just want to tell all of you that we didn't escape it because we didn't go into the military. We're in a war every day of our lives, and, but it seems like to me that years ago, and maybe I was just a little blind to it, that the enemy kind of came by sneak attack. Did it seem like that? It was like, whoa, where did that come from? How did that happen? That was under the radar for so long, and then all of a sudden I'm seeing this thing, but that's not the kind of war we're in anymore. We're in a war right now where it's in our face. The enemy says, I'm coming, and there's nothing that you can do about it. We see it coming, and it's coming in our face, and he's trying to intimidate us because he no longer feels like that he has to go by way of sneak attack. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like these things that are happening in our school, they're not hidden anymore. They're happening right in front of our eyes. And I have to ask myself, church, what, what are we doing about this? I know Matt had spoke, you know, several weeks ago and he was talking about like how God was putting this on his heart, like I'm stirring you up for war. I feel like that's what I'm kind of doing. And, and as I was preparing for this message, I'm like, that's what I feel too. I feel like God's trying to stir us up. He's saying, hey, guys, you're in a war whether you know it or not, and I need you to wake up. And he's calling the church to wake up. So the message that I want to talk to you today is do not relent. That's the title of my message. And the definition of relent, it's to become less severe, to let up or to slacken. So it's not that you give up. It's not that you throw in the towel. But when we relent, we just kind of back off a little bit. 
Now, I get it. That usually happens because the pressure's been coming at us. And so you guys feel that? Do you feel like there's been a lot of pressure for a long time? And what the enemy's trying to get us to do is, all right, fine, you can have that ground. Okay, okay, fine. Like, I'll just, I'll just give you that. Just let me keep my ground here. But what I want to tell you is that's not how the enemy works. He doesn't make deals. He's not going to say, okay, well, if you give me this, then I'll leave that alone. He's out to steal, to kill, and destroy. And so he is out to take every ground that he can get from you, and he will not stop. So I have to say, you know, I want to ask ourselves today, are we going to keep relenting as a church, or are we going to say, no more? This is the line. I'm done. I'm fighting back. I'm going to put on my armor, and I'm going to fight back in this war that I have been in. Hebrews 10, 38 through 39 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, or we can replace that, if anyone relents, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those. Church, if Jesus is your Savior, if you have accepted him as your Lord, we are not those that draw back. We are ones that believe unto the saving of the soul. We are the ones that keep believing, keep standing ground, keep pressing forward to the saving of our soul and our family's souls and our nation's souls. So today I want to talk with you about two great conquest leaders in the Bible, Joshua and King David. These were mighty warriors They were both warriors that took a lot of ground for the Lord and for God's people. And so under King David's reign, this is when Israel experienced the most occupation of the promised land that they ever have here to date. And that it was such a great conquest that it lasted through King Solomon's reign. And so David was such a mighty warrior that Israel had its glory days. I've been in Israel, and I hear him talk about that, like back when King David reigned, back when King Solomon, and they're always referencing back and looking back to wanting to be there. But what we as Christians know is that their greatest days are yet to come, right? There is going to be a day when they're going to occupy all of the promised land. Now, Joshua, he was considered by many the greatest conquest leader that Israel has ever known. He conquered 31 kings. Can you imagine? 31 battles. But on top of that, he took a group of people that were definitely not prepared for war. They were hand-fed from the sky. They got water from a rock. These were people that were so far from warriors. And God says, here, take these people and go make the greatest conquest in Israel's history to date. And Joshua said, yes. So as we dig in today, I want to talk to you about several things that we can learn from these relentless leaders. So before we get started, let's pray. Dear Father God, I just pray that you would speak to each and every one of us in this place today, Lord God. I pray that you would stir up something in us, that you would stir up purpose, that you would stir up courageousness, that you would stir up boldness in the hearts of the people today, Lord God. I pray that you would make this message personal to them and that you would have your way in this place. And God, above all things, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. And so for the first lesson that we can learn from these men is that failure isn't fatal. Failure isn't fatal. We all fail. We fail in small ways. We fail in big ways. How many of you have ever failed? A few of you. For for those of you that haven't, please come talk to me because I want to learn from you. (laughs) No, we've all failed. And for some of us, we allow those failures to not only define the area that we failed in, but to define everything. 
We're like, oh, I wasn't good enough in this area, so I must just in general not be good enough in anything. I failed over here in a business, and so I'm probably going to fail as a parent or to try anything else or to try anything new. And that's what the enemy wants. He wants to define us by our failures. But I want to ask you this question. You know, have you ever looked at failure as a lesson? That actually there is so many things that you can learn from failure that you can never learn from success. Failure often reveals our heart and it gives us opportunity to deal with it so that God can take us further than we ever went before. Take King David, for example. If you know the story of King David, you know he had a great failure. David and Bathsheba. You guys know that? So David's men were away at war. This is what David had always done. And, you know, I get this picture that he was kind of like walking around with his hands in his pockets going, I'm really bored, like... My buddies are at war, and there's not really anything to do, and everything's really quiet. Oh, look at her. She's pretty. I mean, the enemy comes like that, right? And all of a sudden, it was like, squirrel, my attention's taken. Yeah? And then he walks down that path. But see, after he walked down that path, and he committed a great sin, and he wound up killing his friend because of that great sin, and he even lost his son, the prophet Nathan came and said, hey, David, I'm going to bring conviction. And what did David do? He said, God, I'm sorry. He immediately repented and he dealt with that sin in his life. But David went on for further battles. David went on to continue to sit on the throne. David went on to say things like, I'm a man after God's own heart and I have clean hands and a pure heart. Like, how could he say that after that great failure? Because he didn't allow it to define everything about him. Because, church, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, that is the only thing that should define you. All failure is a lesson. The battle of Jericho, Joshua was sent out into his first battle. And God was like, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to march around the wall. You're going to take some clay pots. You're going to win this battle, but touch nothing. Leave it all. Every plunder, all the spoil, that's mine, but you go in and you take this battle. So Joshua leads the people. They, by faith, go and march around the city with their clay pots, win the battle of Jericho, and this was this huge city, this great fortress. So they go on to king number two at Ai, much smaller, less powerful, and they lose. Well, what in the world happened? Why did they lose? Well, someone had taken something from Jericho, and God said, I'm not with you if you're not going to obey me. Now, many of us, we, we kind of respond like this. When someone does something and we suffer failure because of it, we still allow it to define us. And if you don't believe me, how many parents have had their kids doing something they weren't supposed to do, and they're like, I'm a terrible parent? Especially your grown kids. Like, come on, guys. Like, they make their own choices. And maybe you didn't do everything right. In fact, you didn't because we're human. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you are a terrible parent your whole life for them. No, but what Joshua did is he repented. And then he killed the man and his family that took that. Israel learned a lesson that when God says something, he means it. When he says don't do something, there's a consequence. You're going to suffer it if you do it. But also that if God says if you do this, you'll have a reward, you're going to receive that reward if you do it. But Joshua went on to defeat 29 more kings. 29. He could have said, I'm a terrible leader. There's no way I can do this. I'm a failure. But that's not what he did. 
He got up, and you know the next battle he fought was I, and he won. And he won. God wants to teach us something from our failures. And while both events are considered great failures in those leaders' lives, neither leader allowed themselves to be disqualified for the things that God had for them. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart fail, but God. So this is what we need to do. When you feel failure, but God. Right? That's the answer. I don't care what it is that you're stepping into. I don't care what it is that you failed. The answer is but God. And with God, all things are possible. Have you guys heard the song, Let It Go? You know, if you don't tell me, I'm going to sing it, and you really don't want that to happen. So, like, how many of you guys have heard the song, Let It Go? Oh, look at how that works. Um, Do you know that that song in that movie, the lady who wrote it, wrote it 18 times? 18 times. The first 17 times, Disney said, nope, not good enough. Ain't happening. Failed. Not going to use it. Okay, I don't know about you, but I think I might give it, like, three tries. And, and then after three, I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm the right girl for the job. Like, there's so many other songwriters out there. Like, or how about five tries? Like, maybe I'd have enough courage to do five tries. Definitely not more than them. But after 17, nope, not good enough, she tried again and wrote the song that we know today. Now, listen to this. That song that we know today wound up changing the entire movie because Elsa was meant to be a villain. But when the Disney heard that song, they were like, oh, my goodness, the script is not good enough for the song. So we're going to change the script to fit the song. And this unknown writer, because she wouldn't give up, is now known all over the place. And she's writing songs for Disney movies all over, all all these Disney movies. I was looking it up, and I was going to give you some examples, and there were tons of them. Isn't that amazing? But she chose for on those 17 failures to learn to learn. What can I learn from this one? How can I make it better? She chose to see it as an opportunity for a lesson versus a defining moment and to quit. How do you respond to failure? Do you draw back and let it define you or do you run to God? Failure is a choice in how you respond to it. A choice to circle the same mountain again and again or to grow from it. God will allow us to revisit the lessons over and over until we learn them. And this may sound like a negative thing, but actually it's a really good thing. Because from every lesson that we learn, it equips us for the next thing. It equips us. And God's not going to let us go into the next season unequipped. And so he's like, well, you can just take that test again. And F doesn't mean you're done. And F means try again. So when you fail, try again. Learn the lesson. Move on. The second point that we can learn is that fear isn't a good counselor. How many of you have listened to the counsel of fear? Yeah, I certainly have. But it's not a good counselor. But the voice of fear can be so loud. It can be so loud. And if it's unchecked by the word of God, it can cause us to change our direction, to back off of where God's calling us to be if we choose to listen to it. Do you know that God told Joshua three times when he was commissioning him in nine verses, do not be afraid? Like, he knew that if he's going to take this group of people that have no idea what they're doing, that are a bunch of little babies that have been fed by manna and all this other stuff, if he was going to have to take those people into battling 31 kings, that he was going to have to know, 
you better not be afraid. There's going to be plenty of opportunity too. In Joshua 1.9, it says, have I not commanded you? This isn't a suggestion. God said, I am commanding you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. <clears throat> Sorry. So this is why we don't have to be afraid. Because God is with us. God is with us. And that's what God was telling Joshua, that you have everything you need because I am with you. And so when fear comes telling you that you're not enough, when fear comes telling you that all the reasons why you can't step into that new thing, why you can't let go, why you can't move forward, God says, but I'm with you. But I'm with you so you can. David had to be afraid of those lions and bears. Like, I don't know if you're like me when you read the story, especially if you've heard it since you were little, you kind of think like this 15-year-old boy just courageously ran for the first time into this bear, and he was like, yes, I got you. Uh, no. Like, what 15-year-old boy would do that? I'm a 42-year-old woman, and I wouldn't do that. Because, listen, if there's a bear that comes on here, that I, what I've heard is that you have to be faster than the slowest person. And so I'm just letting you know, I will outrun you. I don't care who you are, because you're going to be the slowest person if there's a bear in a room. So, like, this is... This has had to be what David was kind of thinking. Like, I can run faster than those sheep. Like, I totally can. He had to feel fear because he was human. But what David said was, even though I feel fear but God. And, and even though, like, maybe he, he killed that bear on that one time. Like, how many, like, you did that one thing that one time, and then here's a lion. You're like, ooh, that's different. They're faster. They can jump further. Maybe I killed the bear, but I don't know that I can kill the lion. Because he had fear there, too. Because the enemy comes after us all, and he tries to scare us all. There was this time in David's life where he wrote Psalm 56, and he was running from Saul, King Saul, and he was in the land of the Philistines, so he's in the land of the enemy. So he's got enemies in his homeland, enemies in the foreign land that, he, that he's in. He's living in caves, afraid of everything that's going to happen. And this is what he wrote in 56, 1 through 4. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemy would hound me all day long, for there are many who fight against me almost high. Have you guys ever been in that place where it feels like everything is coming against you? Everything, if it, like all around, things are coming against me. I've certainly been there. And he said, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me? So I have a question. I don't know if you noticed this. It sounds like a contradiction. He said, whenever I am afraid, I will not fear. Well, if you're afraid, aren't you fearing? No. When you're afraid, you're feeling fear. But you don't have to choose to walk out that fear. You can choose to say, even though I'm feeling fear, I'm going to walk where God called me to walk. There's this great illustration that I heard um, in a book, so I won't take credit for it, but it's about lions because I'm really into lions right now, apparently. Um, but it was talking about how lions hunt. And so how many of you believe that the female lions do all or most of the hunting? Not true. You know, it's mostly the older people in the room. It's okay. We've learned some things. Um, but, but, sorry. But um, actually, the male lions do a decent amount of the hunting. They just have to do it differently because of their big, giant manes, and they're slower, you know, the females are so much faster. That's why they do more of it. 
girls. Um, anyway, so the, the male lions have to hide in like brush and all kinds of things to hunt. But when the male lions get older, it's really interesting. They still participate in the hunting, even though they've lost their teeth and they're even slower. They help with the hunting and they train the young lions how to hunt. And so what they do is the young lions kind of run off and the, male, and the older male lion, he waits. And then he lets out this giant roar and all the prey go running away from him into the hands of the young lions. It's remarkable. But the enemy does that too. Because see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the keys to death and to Hades. He took the power away from the enemy. So he yanked out the enemy's teeth and he declawed him. And he's much slower, but he's still got a giant roar. He still has a giant roar. And see, if instead of when he roars in fear, when the things of God were coming, when God was trying to call us into new things, if we ran towards the fear instead of away from the fear, more than likely we'd be running into the will of God. Because see, if the prey would run towards the lion, they'd probably be able to outrun him. But instead, they ran right into the trap of the young lions that was being set. The enemy, he's not going to try to scare you away from being out of God's will. So if the enemy's trying to cause you fear, it's because you're walking towards God's will. And so if you will run towards that, if you will say, I'm afraid to forgive, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm afraid to step into that new business, but I'm going to do it anyway because I believe God's calling me. If I'm afraid to move to Africa, but I believe God's calling me, then I'm going to do it. Whatever it is, if we'll run towards the thing that God's calling us to, run towards the fear, more than likely we'll find ourselves in the will of God. I'm going to tell a story on you, Jordan. I'm sorry I did not ask, but Jordan was telling me a few weeks ago about how he went cliff, jump, cliff jumping um, from a cliff into water. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I would love to do that. I used to do it when I was a kid, but I don't really want to do it. And he's like, yeah. And he was telling me how he got up on the top of the cliff, and he was talking to someone who asked him if he was really excited. And he said, no. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? You're not really excited? He's like, no, I'm afraid of heights. And so they're like, well, that's interesting. Like, why are you on top of a cliff if you're afraid of heights? He's like, well, I'm afraid of water, too. <laughs> okay, buddy. Like, you're going to have to really explain this to me because, like, you're getting ready to jump off of a high cliff into water, and it doesn't make any sense if that's what you fear why you're doing it. And what he said was remarkable. He said, because I'm more afraid of fear controlling me. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? Are you more afraid of unforgiveness keeping you in bondage? than you are afraid of letting go? Are you more afraid of sitting and wondering what God could have done through you than you are of maybe messing up but finding out? We should be running towards the fear rather than running away. I had this conversation with God not too long ago, and he was talking to me about dealing with my fear. And he was telling me that I needed to trust him more. That I needed that what I fear is because of a lack of trust. And so the third thing, the third point is that we have to have unwavering trust to be able to keep our ground and take ground from the enemy. We have to trust that we're enough. Not because we see it in ourselves, but because God is with us. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it says, it's not 
that I think, or that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own, but it's our qualification comes from God. So how many times have you looked and you said, I can't step into that because I don't see that I have enough. And God says, you don't, you don't, but I do. I have enough. I have enough. So will you trust me? Will you trust that I have enough for you? Like God told Joshua, he told him, I am going to tell you where to go. And because I'm telling you where to go, I'm going to be with you. And because I'm with you, you have everything you need. You have everything you need. If we're looking for everything we need standing on the shoreline, then we're going to say we don't have it. Because a lot of times what you need for step five is in step three. And what you need for step 20 is in step 15. And, you're, and if you don't go to step 15, you're never going to have what you need for step 20. And you certainly won't have it staying on the shoreline. God wants to take us on a journey of faith. He wants to increase our trust in him. He wants to lead us to a place out in the waters where we're fully dependent on him, fully trusting in him. But oftentimes the thing that keeps us from moving back is that we kind of want to be on our own sure footing. Like, like we want to see, I don't want to jump off that cliff because I don't really know what's under there. I, don't, I can't see myself and so I'm afraid. And God's saying, but I'm there. Is that enough? Do you trust that I'm enough? We have to move into taking new territory knowing that we have everything we need because we know that God is with us. And so when God was having this conversation with me and he was telling me that the reason why I wasn't stepping into new things is because I wasn't trusting with him. And I was like, but God, you know, like I don't, I don't see it in myself. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're leaning on your own understanding. And, and you know that famous scripture in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? You know, you're not supposed to do that. I was like, oh. Like he tells us all throughout his word that you're going to have to step out into everything I have for you in faith. And, and, if you, and if you walked with God for a while, you're like, yes, I get that. Until you walk up to the edge of that cliff. And you're like, oh, well, God, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know you meant faith like that. I didn't know you meant jump the cliff into the water that I'm afraid of, you know, I thought you meant all these other things that I could see. And God's like, well, no, because that doesn't take faith. That doesn't take trust. But this does. And that's all of us. That's the journey we all walk. Joshua learned to trust that if God was with him, there was no reason to draw back. And he had to learn to trust God that he would give him everything he need for those people that didn't know what they were doing, that he would equip them, that he would give them the knowledge, that he would prepare them. I wonder sometimes if the reason why they used pots at Jericho is because they didn't yet know how to use a sword. It's possible. You know, like they're going to kill themselves with those swords, so we'll just use pots on the first time. (laughs) Then we'll use swords after they've had a little more time to train. But when it came time to use swords, they were ready. Anytime they needed something, when they were following God and trusting with him, they were always ready. There's a story of King David and Shimei, which just so you know, it's pronounced Shimei, not Shimmy. I learned this from my 15-year-old who takes Bible class. Sometimes they're very helpful in the pronouncing of these things. Uh, So she informed me as I was telling her, this is what I'm going to talk about. And she's like, that's not how you say it, mom. I was like, yes, it is. You know, don't tell me. Google, shoot. 
all right. Um, but in 2 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, David, he, he's, talking to, or he's talking to Abishai. So let me give you the backstory before we read that, actually. What's happening at this time is Absalom, David's son, had just taken over the throne. He just conspired for years against David, and he just now got his throne. And so David is fleeing for his life with some of his mighty men. And so I'm trying to put myself in this place, and I'm saying, like, how David must have been feeling. Like, he's leaving the purpose that God has for him, that God spoke to him when he was a young boy. And it's his son. And not did his son just do this on a whim, but this was a premeditated, well-thought-out, go-behind-your-back, steal-the-hearts-of-the-people kind of plan. And now you're running for your life back into the land of enemies and all these other things. Like, what would you be thinking? Like, his heart had to have been broken for his son on top of all this. And he's leading these men out. And then the enemy does what he always does. Here comes Shimei. And Shimei is cursing him, blaming him for the death of Saul, throwing stones at him, spitting at him, all these things. And then here comes Abishai, and he's like, okay, King David, can I kill him? I mean, what would you say? Like, if you know the story, I know, well, the right thing to say is, no, I would say, yes, please, kill him. Like, take one thing off my plate that I have to think about. But that's not what King David said. So in verses 12 through 13, it says, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued on. What David said was, you know what? I'm going to look beyond this situation. I'm going to say that God's in control even over this guy and his cursing. And maybe God's allowing him to do this because he wants to reward me. And he wants to reward me for enduring this and living righteously and looking above the situation. And so maybe if I just endure it and trust God, that I will get a reward out of it. Now, how many of you have ever looked at someone doing something like that to you like that? I have never, I I mean, I've really probably never looked at it like that. Like, God's going to bless me for this guy being a big old jerk to me and accusing me of things wrong. No, I'm one, hey, like, how do I, I, a lot of times I'm like, God, I did a good job because I didn't defend my own reputation. I let the other guy take his head off, right? But no, God, David said, no, 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 we're not going to do anything. We're going to put this entire thing in the hands of God. And David knew that God was with him. He knew that God anointed anointed him, and he knew that if he could take a shepherd boy out of the fields at 15, use him to slay bears and uh, lions and giants, and then put him on the throne to rule his people, that he can do it again. And that he didn't have to take it into his own hands. But if it were me in that low moment, I have to ask, what would I do? Because I want to be like David. I want to be able to see through God's eyes, through spiritual eyes and everything, to have such trust and faith in God that even in a moment like that, I'm going to look and see his greater plan. The last thing that I want to talk about today is that unity is necessary. Unity is necessary. Some synonyms for unity in the Bible are of one accord or of one mind. And I really like the definition of one accord. It says, they do it together or at the same time because they agree about how it should be done. Now, I can't imagine that all the times that the Bible talks about being in one accord, that everybody, because there were sometimes hundreds of people, thousands of people, that they all agreed on everything at the same time. 
What they're saying is they agreed on the main things. They agreed on the important things. And they let all the other lesser things not be something that divides them because they were going to stay unified because they agreed on the main thing. Guys, if we agree that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he is coming back, like we have the most important thing, let's not let the other things divide us. I mean, the other things are important, and we need to work through them, and we need to talk about it, and we need to grow. But this is what I've learned, is that if we're all growing and going after Jesus, that he's going to convict me, and he's going to convict you, and he's going to lead me, and he's going to lead you, and most of the time, we're going to get there together. We're going to get there together. Division always hinders the forward movement and causes us to draw back. And our forefathers, they knew this because they said things like, united we stand and divided we fall. Have you guys heard that? Like, like he, he was seeing something. He was like, man, if we can stick together, we will stand firm. Now, I don't believe he thought that millions of people would all agree on everything. But he's saying that we're agreeing on the important things of this country. And if so, we will stand But if we allow things to divide us, we will fall. And I think times are showing us that, sadly. Our pledge is one nation under God, indivisible. The indivisible part is hingent on the under God part in that. And so if we will stay one nation under God, if if we as the church will fight for the under God part, he will do the indivisible part. We don't have to fight for the indivisible part. We have to stay under God and allow him to, to do unity in us and in our relationships and in our family and in our church body, and then he will do the indivisible part. Abishai, you know, he requested to kill Shimei a second time. He didn't learn his lesson on the first time because, see, once Absalom was killed, David's son, and David was coming back to the throne, they walked the same path back home, and Shimei, like... You know, he's a bold guy. So after all that cursing and all that stuff, he came back out and he was like, oh, King David, I'm so sorry. Like, forgive me for all that stuff, you know, throwing stones and accusing you of things you didn't do and all that. You know, have mercy on me. And so Abishai, he was like, can I kill him now? I mean, I get it. Like, you know, I mean, kind of want Abishai's there sometimes. But this is what David said in 2 Samuel 19, through 23. He said, what does this have to do with you, you son of Zariah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that I am king of Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. Now this, he, King David didn't say that because he believed Shimei was right or, or he thinks, even that he thought that he, you know, was really sorry because most theologians don't think he was actually even sorry. But what he valued in that moment greater than revenge was peace, was unity, was God doing something to bring a, a people that was torn apart back together? And King David said, I'm not going to go after personal you know, gain. I'm going to go after the unity of God's people. And David had done this in the past because back when there was a civil war and his mighty men had broken apart and Abner was on the opposite side of David, he wound up killing one of Abishai's brothers. And so the third brother, Joab, during the time of peace when Abner was trying to come back. And he was like, hey, let's, let's reunite together. Let's, let's get back together now that the war is over. And King David was absolutely, Joab said, time to take revenge. 
And David was like, on his deathbed, he told King Solomon, you need to punish him for that. Because someone who in peacetime will act in battle time, someone who values his own revenge over peace, has no business being commander of the king's army. What is more important in these times is unity in God's people. Joshua, he had all the tribes come together for the full conquest. So what had happened is two and a half tribes were going to stay on the east side of the Jordan River. And they were kind of like, hey, we got our land, right? Like, we're just going to hang out here. Why cross the river and, and do all this stuff? And Joshua's like, no, 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 because that could divide the people. Suddenly it's you and us. But it's never supposed to be you and us because we're one body. We're one people. We have one God, and it's going to be us and us all the time. And so us conquer this side of the Jordan River. Us is going to conquer the other side of the Jordan River because they were going to struggle with division all throughout history, and they did. But he said, no, we're going to do what we can to create unity and to keep God's people unified together. I've heard so many testimonies, so many testimonies, and mine is the same, of people who were out kind of love God, Christians, kind of doing their own thing, and then they got planted into the house of God. And when they did that, they grew. I'm sure a lot of you have the same story. I was raised in church. I grew up in church. I love God. I got saved when I was young you know, all of that, but we kind of always were in our own pot, like Mac talks about. We would come in, we'd sit in the back row, we'd leave, we wouldn't talk to anybody, woohoo, worship, praise God, bye. You know, we really didn't talk to anybody through my whole growing up, but then I married this man, you know him, that likes to talk to everyone, and if he's in, he's in. So he wasn't saved when we met, but when he got saved, he was all in. And so we were going to talk to everybody, we were going to meet everybody, we were going to know everybody, and that's what we did. And I did not want to, to do that because I was, I was happy in my own pot um, talking to no one. But when we started building relationships, I grew immensely. I grew immensely. And now listen, guys, I grew relationships with imperfect people that said things they shouldn't have said at times, some that hurt me. Some that hurt me pretty bad. Some that missed it. Like, I, I needed them and they weren't there for me. But I still grew because God is going to cover all of those things when we will operate in unity. And you know, a lot of those perfect people that hurt me here, they were the biggest blessing to me over here. The biggest blessing. So most of the time, it wasn't intentional. Most of the time, they were still working through their stuff or whatever. But in the house of God, we all grow further and go farther. Like there's the um, thing in the Bible where it says one kills a hundred and two will kill a thousand. That's what we do together. And so if we're going to take ground from the enemy, do you want to be the one out there fighting your hundred? Or do you want someone beside you so that you can slay a thousand? And if in this room we can have the 200 or whatever in this room, who knows? Maybe the pornographic books will no longer be in our schools. Maybe the things that are confusing identity so badly in our kids, maybe they'll be ran out. Maybe the politicians that compromise, they either won't be there or they will not compromise anymore because there's a people that are going to hold them accountable for truth. Maybe if we take just the people in this room, we can make a major difference in our community, in our region, in our state, which desperately needs it. What can we do if we unify Together, Here are some things that happened when God's people were in unity. The Holy Spirit was poured out when they were all in one accord, 10 days after Jesus ascended. 
I kind of wonder, like, what, what would have happened if they were in unity one day after he ascended? Did it take 10 days for them to finally come together? Maybe. Acts 2, it says they were all in one accord and God added to the church daily. How many of you have some people that you would love added to the church? Some people that are walking away from God, some people that you've been praying about for years. Maybe, maybe we need to get in one accord. Maybe we need to let some lesser things go so that we can come together. The Bible says that Jesus is in the midst of us when two or three gather together in his name. When we come together in one accord of his name, Jesus comes and sits in the midst of us. Like, in Jesus, he, he is everything. Like, what do you need that can't be taken care of if Jesus comes and sits in the midst? And if all we have to do is get together two or three in unity and stand on that thing... That should be happening all the time. All the time. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through it all. One. We're, we divide on some of these things but but the bible says there's only one like there isn't yours and mine there's one and if we come together in unity then god will work those details out in our heart and he will do amazing things through us are you walking in division somewhere will you allow god to heal it today will you choose to contend for unity we were singing that song i speak jesus and when it says, shout Jesus in the darkness, I kind of get this picture of the church all across our country, all across the world, saying we're going to come together and we're going to shout Jesus. What, what would happen in the spirit realm? What happens when the name of Jesus, the, the name above every other name, the name that carries all authority, the name that saves, what would happen if the church the one body would come together and say, no, we're going to shout Jesus into the darkness. Man, those things would flee. They would lose all grip. They would lose all ground. The church would be added to daily.